0: How's it going, guys? These are the worst date movies ever. My name is Greg Knox, and I'm super happy to be joined on the show once again by the lovely Miroslava Hartman.
1: Well, hello there, Greg Knox. Thank you for having me back. Um, I really, really love doing these with you.
0: Yeah, always a pleasure. Um, this is actually the seventh time that I've had Miroslava on the show. She is my Soviet movie expert and anything that's kind of art house. I love having Miroslava on the show. To uh, talk about these films,
1: yeah, anything that involves open heart surgery or the equivalent of—I um, think we've done a few, a few challenging, uh, romantic or anti-romantic films. Like we've done for Tia Keen's Head On. Uh, we've done uh, Michael Haneke's The Piano Teacher. We've done Romper Stomper. Arguably, these are all messed up love stories.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> funny that seems to be uh, a bit of a common theme generating. Um in the shows and uh, this one is no different because for anyone who's concerned that maybe you know I didn't want to cover the really really fucked up shit on this show anymore oh boy have I got a show for you because (laughs) I'm covering um, with Miroslava today Irreversible by Gaspar Noé which is well we're going to talk about on the show it definitely has a reputation as a film not to watch on a date
1: Oh, uh, Absolutely. Um, would you say there is a Gaspar Noé film that that would be a good film to watch on a date?
0: Love, maybe.
1: <laughs> Depends if uh, probably not a first date. <laughs> probably if you probably if you're not prepared to put out at the end of that date, don't don't watch Love on a, on that date.
0: Yeah, maybe like a fourth or a fifth date, <laughs> if you kind of know your boundaries. At that point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit of a blue movie, isn't it?
0: It is a very blue movie, but it is not as bad a date movie as Irreversible as we will talk about on the show today. So you're probably aware of this already. You're listening to a podcast about Irreversible, but there is actual disturbing content on the show today, particularly we're going to be talking about rape because this film has one of the most infamous rape scenes in it of all time as we will go into when we talk about it later on. So if you're likely to be upset by discussions of rape, sexual assault, anything of that nature, then obviously listener discretion is advised. Also, as is the case with every single episode on this show, I go into spoiler territory in every show. Like I always say, we're not talking about these films from scene to scene to scene, but be aware, obviously, there'll be many, many, many spoilers. So watch out. Um, So Miroslava, are you ready?
1: I think as ready as can be
0: Then let's get on with the show Here we go, it's Irreversible Gaspar Noé, Let's Get Dark directed by Gaspar Noé, and it came out in 2002. Who is Gaspar Noé? I'm here to tell you, along with Miroslava. But if you already know who he is, you already know he's considered possibly... Is he the bad boy of arthouse cinema, would you say?
1: Uh, He's certainly a very polarising director. Uh, He's solely responsible for some of the most disturbing scenes in arthouse cinema. And I feel like uh, with most critics, they either laud him or they loathe him, and he has been accused of being quite kind of gimmicky, but at the same time, I think that his films are extremely moving, very well put together, and they have extraordinary depth to them, and In so many ways, he's sort of the epitome of the auteur because he creates, with his films, a consistent universe. And even we'll see in Irreversible that one of the characters from two of his earlier films, *Kane* and I Stand Alone, the butcher, makes an appearance at the beginning of, of Irreversible, just to kind of remind you that you are very much in Gaspar Noé's universe. And yeah, he sort of takes on quite quite difficult themes, you know, themes of 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 loss, of violence, um, including sexual violence, death, that seems to be um another recurring theme. Uh the drug, death of love. The death of love, that's true. Also um intoxication. There's certainly a kind of a psychedelic dimension to his films, certainly his um his later films. To me, um, he is a director who harnesses the visual means of contemporary cinema, including um, digital editing, to show you something you would not otherwise see. So he's very much a pioneer. And yes, that does mean that he is very often pushing the boundaries. Um, you, you were telling me earlier about the fact that he's associated with the New French Extreme Cinema. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, so New French Extreme Cinema, or New French Extremity, which is kind of what I would call it, is something that I'm going to go into in a bit more detail the next episode, because I'm going to be talking about another film from France, that's tied to new French extremity, but in a slightly different way. The term new French extremity actually was coined by a critic called James Quant. And like film noir, there isn't like sort of, uh, it's not like action films, for example, or comedies or horror films where it's a genre, it's films that are tied together by themes I guess and they're all kind of transgressive films all made in France or French speaking countries in the late 90s and kind of the first half of the 2000s for the most part. Now Gaspar Noé is kind of most closely associated with the movement, but you also have directors like François Ozon, Catherine Breillat, Bruno Dumont, Claire Denis, Trouble Everyday, Marina devans in My Skin, Léos Carax's Polar X and Films by Alexandra Ayar, so High Tension, Tension, and also, well, quite an infamous film that I am actually quite tempted to cover on this channel. It's on a basmoire as well. So it's all these films that came out in a sort of a similar period of time. And yeah, as I said, they're all kind of tied by these themes of transgression.
1: Um, Also, Olivier Sayas. Um he's sort of another another director who was um kind of associated with the movement, certainly like his demon lover film kind of fits the bill, but he's sort of evolved past it do you i mean, would you agree that Gaspar Noe, although associated with the movement, has kind of evolved past the movement
0: to some extent, yeah, I would say he has. I would say his early films are quite nihilistic and quite misanthropic. And while his later films, they're not happy and optimistic films, (sighs) although I think in a certain way, some of them are, they're not as angry, but I guess that, you know, as a consequence of getting older, it seems to happen with a lot of artists, be it in film or be it in music where the early work is sort of very angry because they want to rage against the world. It's like, fuck you world. How dare you? And then, yeah, as they get older, they're, you know, a bit more chilled out and stuff like that. And I think that is a, to a certain extent in, uh, in no Ace films as well. But it's interesting we're talking about sort of uh, Gaspar Noé's back catalog and it's definitely worth going through because I would say he's got a very consistent back catalog at least in his full-length films. I like most of his full-length films, bar one which is still good, but it's not something that I'm happy to watch again. But we'll go into that in a second. Um so the first release that is of note is the short film Khan which, as Miroslav already mentioned, is about a butcher and essentially his life and his relationship with his daughter and things of that nature. What were your thoughts on Khan?
1: I really enjoyed it. I thought that it does merit being seen alongside I Stand Alone, which is essentially part two. Um, I found it very moving. I found it very different to his his later films, which I was more familiar with and I had seen multiple times. Uh, my first Gaspar Noé film would have been Enter the Void, which completely blew my mind. It was unlike anything that I had ever seen. So to me, Noé was um, always associated with a sort of... Uh, kind of psychedelic high cinema and, you know, really inventive camera work, lots of um, digital uh, editing and sort of quite um, fantastical uh, scenes, Uh, whereas uh, Khan and and I Stand Alone has a very deadpan, almost documentary uh, quality. And yet I think there's definitely a a common thread, uh, a baseline um which sort of uh that probably would be um showing people at their rawest when facing uh, quite quite extreme situations
0: yeah and as murray's already said it was followed by a sequel of sorts although it's kind of the weirdest sort of sequel in film history because you've got essentially the first part of the story and then i stand alone which i have gotta be honest i can't Hear that translation without going ah stand alone. <laughs> that's all I can think of, unfortunately. Because I, I mean, as you probably tell by me going through all these lovely French directors, I don't speak French, so I've got a very kind of English kind of way of saying French names. So I'm not even going to attempt <laughs> to to tell you the French title. Was that was I've that Godsmack? Some, yeah, it's Godsmack. Yeah. So um, so yeah, as you can hear, French. It's, uh, it's not a language that I speak, so it would be just me doing kind of weird French accents, AS. guess. Um, but that is the follow-up to Khan, and it takes the story of the butcher. So in Khan, it's essentially the story of the butcher and his relationship to his daughter, how he ended up in prison because he thought a guy raped his daughter and he beat up the wrong man. He ended up going to prison. He lost his butcher shop, which seems to fuck him over in sort of quite a lot of ways. And at the start of I Stand Alone, he's this very angry man. Like literally the first half of this film is I think the most misanthropic film possibly I've ever seen. I mean, is that something you would agree with? Or
1: I think it's definitely uh, one of the most um, nihilistic, misanthropic films that I've seen. It almost feels like a celine novel that has been brought to the screen you know like death on the installment plan and stuff like that at the same time the editing reminded me of amelie and delicatessen <laughs> um, you know it really has that kind of quirky french early 2000s you know uh collages voiceovers uh, Slideshows showing kind of um, photographs of the butcher uh, from from childhood to the present day. You know that that kind of thing that sort of made me made me smile. It was kind of quite disconcerting. It's like the anti Amelie.
0: Yeah, I'm sure Gaspar would be absolutely delighted that you've just compared his film to Amelie.
1: <laughs> I don't think yeah. he would mind.
0: I don't think he'd mind that much. He's, he's probably a big softy at heart.
1: Isn't he? Uh, well, imagine. I actually, um, I, as you know, I um, I met him when he was in Kiev for the premiere of Love. And that could be one of the reasons why, actually, I have a soft spot for Love, even though everybody pans it. But, you know, there's, there's <laughs> nothing quite like watching Love in 3D on the big screen, having just met Gaspar Noe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, Yeah, and he just, he's extremely polite, extremely laid back, very kind, you know, very kind of considered, uh, very humble. Um, He's the sort of guy like watching his films, you would think that he's this sort of larger than life obnoxious character. And certainly there's enough kind of self-effacement and kind of self-irony in his films, you know, the way he kind of presents filmmakers and especially like young filmmakers, um, you know, the, the main character in Love. And then quite recently, Lux Eterna, which we just watched, um, the 2019 kind of mockumentary or pseudo-documentary film that kind of takes a, a very, uh, you know, a, a harsh light to the the modern film industry. But actually, yeah, you see, I found him very humble and very sort of... I, I told him that, I, you know, Enter the Void was a very important film for me and I really thought it was a work of genius. And he was like, oh, I don't know about that. You know, one always has this <laughs> image of what a film... Um, is is meant to look like in your head and then you're just left with whatever it is that you've made you know so setting himself quite quite high um quite high goals I think and 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 succeeding and in, in wowing us along the way
0: yeah I uh I can't say I've met Gaspar Noé but he was at the showing of Climax at Fright Fest that I was at in 2018 And he seemed like a sort of, yeah, quite nice, quite softly spoken kind of guy. He was trying to get them to turn the sound system up as like loud as humanly possible to deafen everyone, which is hilarious. He's sort of, he's got a bit of a reputation, I think, as a bit of a prankster. Because believe it or not, on the Mint configuration, or if you go on our YouTube channel, I think the most watched video on that channel is us talking about Climax. And it's quite interesting going back to it because I'm, you know, absolutely loving it. I'm raving about it, telling everyone how great it is. And Rhea was like, it's all right. And Tom Dennett Cook wasn't that I, I think he was slightly impressed, but it's not not really and the other Tom hadn't seen it. So yeah, it was, it's quite amusing going back to it. But yeah, at that point, it was, if you're going to see a film like Climax or indeed Irreversible or even Enter the Void, I think seeing it on as big a screen as possible with the loudest sound system imaginable is the way to see it. Um, in terms of gimmickry, because one of the things, as you mentioned, Gaspar Noe is known for is kind of the use of gimmickry in his films. I Stand Alone is the first one with a gimmick, which is stolen from William Castle in a lot of ways um, because near the end of the film, I mean, it's probably about 25 minutes, 30 minutes from the end of the film, he gives us a warning that some really fucked up shit is going to go down. If you don't want to be upset, leave now turn the film off, and it gives you a countdown. I think it's 30 seconds? Yeah. Isn't it? Um, So I thought that was quite interesting.
1: Another thing which really struck me is the fact that as early as Khan, he has these very characteristic intertitles using a particular font that he's known for. Yes, yes. And just, just amazing. I mean, Khan is what, 1990, something like that? 1990. Yeah, 91. 91. Yeah. And, and as early as 91, he has such, uh, you know, such a definite vision. He kind of knows what he's trying to say, what he's trying to do. And he's sort of inserting these, um, almost, you know, aphorisms into, into the film and also, playing around with the sequence you know like in many films the titles don't come in the beginning they kind of come midway through the film or at like random points in the film
0: yeah he loves doing stuff like that it's very the, the thing with the titles is very godar like Godard loves doing shit like that i think that's basically where he got that from mm. and also he will and this is something that people make fun of him for i would say Probably deservedly so, because it's quite a po-faced sort of pseudo-intellectualist thing to do, is he will have these cards that will come up with these short statements on, like irreversible is kind of the most well-known one, which is time destroys everything. But in Climax, for example, there's three of them that comes up where I don't know, it's I can't remember exactly what they said, but yeah, it's these short, kind of pithy kind of quotes. And he does it in uh, Lux Turner as well, where he's got these quotes from like Jean-Luc Godard or Fassbinder, or Carthia
1: Dryer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sure. So that's
0: something that, again, he's very, very known for as is, you know, wacky titles.
1: Mm, I think they're quite tongue-in-cheek as well because um, was it in sta- um, was it a nice standalone or con? You know, death opens no door. <laughs> <You> know, just- <laughs> <laughs> really sort of larger-than-life uh, sweeping statements, which in in some ways yeah. are both contradicted by the action on the screen and confirmed. Certainly in the case of Irreversible, Time Destroys Everything um, really is a narrative of unravelling told in reverse.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, as you've said... I Stand Alone is very different from all the films that he made afterwards and that's probably because he had a different cinematographer so all the films that he's made post I Stand Alone the cinematographer is Benoit debie, who is awesome like all the kind of great cinematography in all of Noé's films comes from him so Mm. all the floating camera movements what I Stand Alone has is the amazing editing So it's very kind of self-conscious editing where right in the middle of a scene a character will talk and then there'll be, I don't know how to best describe it, but it's like there'll be like an orchestral note for like a second and then it will cut to the next shot, I guess.
1: It's almost like a a shot, almost like a hole punch, you know, like the sound like a hole punch makes when Mm. it's kind of bashing through paper. It's very kind of like... (laughs) And then, like, a very dramatic cut with, like, a slight zoom in, almost.
0: Yeah, yeah, he does it sort of really, really well. His films are stylish, and I stand alone, even though the the camera isn't floating in the air and kind of swirling overhead like in his later films do. But the camera work is still awesome. So you've got, you know, tracking shots, you've got the sort of very still shots... On the main character, because it's his story mm. and i I could you know literally like all of of noah's films, I could do episodes based just on each one all together, and I'd have enough material, believe me, that's how great I think these films are um but yeah, I just found the editing style very different in that compared to the rest of his films, and then after that we had irreversible, which we are kind of going to go into in a minute so i'm not going to go into that too much now <clears throat> after that so irreversible 2002 and we've already mentioned it 2009 we got into the void so as miro said it's the first noe film that you saw and it had such a profound impact on you now <laughs> without wanting to uh cast any aspersions on you mrs um <laughs> Is that the um, circumstances of which you saw it, or was it the film itself? See how I've asked that.
1: I would say it was a bit of both.
0: All <laughs> oh, right. Okay. <laughs> um,
1: I missed the um, the Kiev premiere event of Enter The Void, which um, I had an invitation to, because uh, one of the radiators in in my house exploded, and it was sort of gushing. Oh wow. Yeah, it was, it was quite dramatic, actually. I spent that evening, um, sort of, uh, (laughs) catching, uh, boiling water that was shooting out of a radiator into, into buckets, um, with my mother in shifts. Um, so I kind of, uh, always wanted to see this film, and it was it's a sign from
0: the universe. The universe <laughs> really didn't want
1: you to watch was. it. Really. No, no, it didn't. I think more correctly, it didn't want me to watch that film with my mother. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. And in a wow.
1: way, like I'm quite, I'm quite sort of happy that we didn't go together because she is. Um, she's exceptionally kind of squeamish and kind of weird about watching anything unpleasant on the screen. Um, she really doesn't like, you know, any any kind of unpleasantness. And I didn't realize, I think, the extent of the challenge that watching this film presents. Um, I think right. um, Noe's films are, they're a bit of a kind of physical and emotional ordeal, aren't they? Like, you know that watching a Noe film it is going to demand of you um, a certain courage, you know, a certain stamina, shall we say? Um, yeah. And and certainly with Enter the Void, um, I, I did I did watch it um, in, in I watched it in two thousand and eleven with a friend, and uh, that was a film that I think that was the only film I've ever seen where I passed out at one point because it was just so much and I've seen it many times since I have it on DVD we rewatched it before this I've kind of seen it over the years and there's something about it I think the sheer length of it you get sort of to a midway point and it's sort of like slightly lost you a little bit you're so exhausted it's kind of bringing you into another state of mind And then it kind of brings you back out of it and kind of sort of, um, you know, takes you all the way to the end. And having seen it every single time, you feel like, whoa, like, what the hell was that? And I think it's, um, it's, it's not, um, it's no coincidence because if you think about the sort of films that Noe tells us he likes, um, and he's sort of quite, he's quite good at both at auto citation. And at putting in these little, you know, clues in his own films about films that he likes, certainly an irreversible. Mm. Um, we see a great big poster of 2001, a space odyssey, the one that says the ultimate trip. Um, so in a yeah, way, I feel he like doing that. he does. I feel like, um, enter the void is his homage to 2001 and you know that that in itself is the ultimate trip for me i'd say that's the trippiest film that i've ever seen um alongside altered states um by ken russell i mean t- to me they almost form like a kind of informal psychedelic trilogy 2001 a space odyssey followed by ken, Rus- uh, ken russell's altered states followed by Gaspar Noe's enter the void
0: wow <laughs> I think if you watched Water States hi, I don't know. Mm, that sounds quite scary to me. It's not quite <laughs> the same. The other two, I can understand that. Yeah, Water right, States. No, I wouldn't want to watch that under the influence. Shall we say? Nah. <laughs> no. No way. No way. Um, but yeah, if you haven't seen Into the Void, I I recommend it as well. I mean, basically, I think the first five or ten minutes are on YouTube. So, if you want to kind of know what you're getting yourself into, then it has, A, the opening credits, which are awesome, but maybe not suitable for people with epilepsy. Because one of the things I would say about Noe, and I'm going to go into this later on, is if you're with someone who's epileptic, Noe is the worst director of all time, because it's like he's trying to kill you. You know, so, yeah, just bear that in mind. But the titles are awesome. And the film is mostly from a first-person perspective, almost like a video game, but you are basically in the main character's head, and he takes DMT, and then you see kind of what taking a DMT trip would be like. And apparently it's meant to be quite accurate to what it is actually like. I, I'm not, you know, Joe Rogan. I have not done DMT. <laughs> but
1: yeah. um so Gaspar Noé took DMT once or twice as research for this film.
0: As research, in inverted commas.
1: As research. Well, I think it really was research for the film. Um, So I think it was intentional, you know, to try and convey that experience as accurately as possible. I have not taken DMT, but I have heard from people who have. that Indeed, it is quite inaccurate. I wonder
0: who those people are. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that is quite an accurate representation of what a DMT trip um, looks like. Interestingly enough, your body actually produces DMT in very small uh, quantities. Um, That is um, uh, one of the drugs that is responsible for inducing um, dream vision. Um, So it's quite a, quite a metaphysical, you know, exploration and, um, it, it sort of toys around with the idea of the Tibetan Book of the Dead and reincarnation. And it shows the main character's, um, spirit leaving his body at the point of death and sort of traveling around, um, from above, you know, looking at his life from above, um, trying to find another, another door through which to enter this mortal coil.
0: Yes, and he he finds one in the end in, well, not to give too many spoilers for Into the Void, it's not really a film you can spoil as such, but his best friend, who loves talking about the Tibetan Book of the Dead, essentially has sex with his sister, and he impregnates her, and you can see, well, you've got basically CGI intercourse essentially going on right in front of your eyes and sort of CGI sperm coming out which um is quite apropos because the next full-length film he made was Love in 2015 which is uh, was promoted as a 3D sex film essentially so this was like a midnight showing at the Cannes Film Festival and yeah it's this is when 3D was sort of still a thing although it never really took off that much after kind of the first half of the, t- the uh, 2010s. And I would say of all his full length films, this is kind of my least favorite. It's not that it's a bad film. It's, it's good, but I just, I prefer his others and yeah, it's got a lot of kind of nudity and it's got a lot of unsimulated sex scenes like kind of uh nine songs by michael winterbottom i don't oh know if you've heard of that film
1: i have seen that film believe it or not oh, right. yeah it was yeah. uh one of my rentals on love film back in the um back in the late 2000s
0: wow yeah, i wonder what they must have thought of you like <laughs> you know something like that but yeah it's essentially his version of that film i think
1: well, he said that he set out to make a sentimental film about love and sex, and I think that's what he has done. It's a film, I think, that we're bound to compare to his other films, which are standout masterpieces. Love is not a masterpiece, but it's nonetheless a very enjoyable film. I found that I enjoyed it much more watching it, re-watching it, and not sort of having very high expectations in a way, just kind of enjoying (laughs) it for the visual feast that it is.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because even though it's not really the sort of story that kind of justifies having like huge sweeping camera movements, uh, the composition of the shots is still really good. I really like sort of the framing in the film. It's the most consciously autobiographical film, I would say, of all his films, because the main character apparently is... Sort of, is it meant to be Gaspar Noé? I I I think he's
1: denied that it's autobiographical.
0: Right. Um, Oh, it's a film director.
1: Sure, but then. So. Yeah, I mean, I I see what you mean. I I don't think it's necessarily supposed to be autobiographical, more than self-referential. I mean, he takes that kind of autocitation to the extreme, you know, by naming everyone in the film after himself in one way or another, naming, you know, the the child of the main character, Gaspar, (laughs) for no reason, and... (laughs) You know, and, 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 stuff like that. Um, so that's actually, I mean, love, um, was originally conceived, see what I did there, um, as a film mm. called Danger. And it was, um, it was a, a script that he had written before Irreversible, even. And he actually meant for Vincent Cassel and Monica Bellucci to star in this film called Danger, which was never made. Um they thought it was too, I mean too much, too kind of full-on and they didn't want to do <laughs> it. But then he kind of ran Irreversible by them. The script of Irreversible had all of three pages to it initially. Um Danger had five or six pages. They decided to fly with Irreversible. Um, and Danger never got made um like it was originally um, um designed and he came back to the idea, having made a reversible and and uh, the void, and um, having a little bit more funding to kind of experiment with um, with the composition, with the lenses and everything. And he even got a grant to use three D technology. <laughs> so, wow! Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's it's something that that comes from from a place of um, experimentation, as much from a place of sentimentality or autobiography.
0: Yeah, yeah. You are right, though. It is very self-referential. So you've already mentioned the baby's name. Uh, he he appears in the film as the ex-boyfriend of the main female character, Electra. And um, his name uh, is
1: Noé, and he's a gallery. His name
0: is Noé. Yeah, he's an art gallery owner. It's Gaspar Noé in a odd-looking wig. I'll say that much, and. All the um the, the main character has posters all over his walls of films that Gaspar Noe really likes. And he has um, a model
1: of the Love Hotel from Into the Void from Tokyo. Yes,
0: yes. True, true. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. And I think
1: um, I, could, I think he has an opium stash in a VHS cassette of I Stand Alone.
0: He does, yes.
1: <laughs> Which I thought was brilliant.
0: Yeah, yeah, so... um He's certainly a make director. Of that well.
1: He's certainly a director. He's a massive cinephile. And he sort of shares that enthusiasm with us.
0: Yes, although how he does it is very different from someone like Rob Zombie, for example. So Rob Zombie, he's watched a lot of films. And what he'll do is, in that way that kind of Tarantino does, mm. he will have his characters have full-blown conversations about, you know, all... Oh, I like, I don't know. Uh, so in one film, characters will say, oh, I'm, you know, the Humphrey Bogart guy and the other character go, well, no, I prefer James Cagney. James Cagney was better. And these people will have these conversations that don't add anything to the plot. They're just, I know, almost like showing off that kind of like, oh, I've watched some films type thing. Whereas, Noe at least kind of does it in a much more subtle well not it's not subtle that's a terrible terrible description of of what he does no it's a lot more kind of it's there if you want to look for it if that makes sense it's not intrinsic to the plot or the dialogue
1: Um, that's what i'm trying to say there are some scenes especially in the earlier films where you can see directly where he's taken them from like for instance he really loves taxi driver and that's a film Mm. that for whatever reason i watched and rewatched quite a lot in my teens and haven't seen for quite a long time and feel like rewatching now in, in, in context of, of this, of understanding Noah better. But there's a scene where the butcher goes to, uh, to like a, a porn cinema in I Stand Alone where he's sort of killing time, where he doesn't want to go back to his, um, to his pregnant wife, um, which is very similar to, to the taxi driver universe. Um, There's almost an identical scene where uh, Travis um, goes to, well, uh, he goes to, to the to the porn cinemas of seventies New York quite a bit in that film, but um, and actually brings a date.
0: <laughs> yeah, he does. He actually has the great idea to bring Sybil Shepherd with him, yeah. like, on his date to uh, the porn cinema, which is not the best idea. Don't do that, everyone. That legit worst date movie ever territory there.
1: Yeah, but that's something that's, um, like a, a like almost like a, a, a visual citation. Um, but then something like Climax, which is, uh, one of his later films is 2017 or 18? 18?
0: 2018.
1: 2018. Um, you would know because of Fright First, right? Um, yeah, yeah. There he actually, um, you know, the, the intro, um, actually shows a, uh, a, a, VHS TV playing audition tapes surrounded by stacks of VHS cassettes and books where you can read the spines and it tells you exactly what films Noah likes. So, you've got Labyrinth Man, um, Zombie, Suspiria, Harakiri, um we've got two Kenneth Anger films, um The Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome and Um Scorpio Rising, uh The Mother and the Whore, Possession, um, which is, you know, another another film that you could argue that the um the the freakout scene in the tunnel is is cited within um climax itself you know when you have people like losing their shit when they're having bad a bad trip yeah, on lsd exactly. so certainly you know sometimes it's subtle other times it's right in your face staring at you <laughs> from the screen read the spine watch the film do it gaspar wants you to
0: yeah yeah so i already mentioned uh, i saw climax at fright Fest, and i had a grand old time absolutely loved it <laughs> Uh, Climax is... Yeah, everyone, you know... Without wanting to sound like a dick, I'm sorry, I apologise in advance if this makes me sound like an absolute tosser, but it's Frightfest. You can imagine a lot of people there, they're just there to see, you know, a zombie film or, you know, a film that's like 80 minutes long and half of it is like people getting killed, essentially. And then they get presented with this sort of French art house film where, you know, the first five minutes uninterrupted is people talking on video on audition tapes. And then there's a long extended kind of dance sequence of like, again, about five minutes, which is awesome, by the way. Mm-hmm. So, so good. So well choreographed. And then you've got characters talking essentially about their lives and wanting to have sex with different people. And, and then another dance sequence. And then you've got the main kind of, you know, story beat of the film, which is that, The, um, what is it? Is it sangria?
1: Yeah, 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 sangria.
0: I thought so. I thought so. My mind went blank for a second there. But yeah, like um, the sangria gets spiked by LSD and then everyone starts tripping and it's all cut really well. It's made to look like it's sort of one take. I don't know if it actually is. It probably isn't one take because God, that would take a lot of planning and stuff, but yeah, it's all edited together to make it look like it's one take. And yeah, it's, um, it's definitely an experience I would say, although, While some pretty messed up stuff happens, it's not as nihilistic as I Stand Alone, for example.
1: but according to Noah, it's a film about collective failure. Okay. (laughs) And in many ways, that is is what happens. We see kind of a a, a microcosm, you know, like a society just unravelling on the screen. Just, you know, the basest instincts taking over and... All that is good and human and warm, um, just completely disintegrating um, in the in the face of of madness and chaos.
0: Yeah, because one of the things that is said in one of his uh, his intertitles that he brings up near the start of the film is like, "This is a French film." And all the characters are sort of different races and different sexualities. You know, you've got LGBTQ characters in there and it's a wide spectrum of modern France. And so for him to then say that is quite interesting because he's clearly then making a comment about France itself.
1: Yeah, he was um he was I think um chimed quite well with the zeitgeist and he was praised for including a a, a vast array of body shapes and and colours um in this film. Mm. Um he's certainly he's certainly got quite quite a varied paint box um in this one.
0: Yes, very, very varied. Um for noobs. So if you're someone who's coming into this who's actually never seen a Gaspar Noé film or you've not seen all of his work, I would say actually a good one to start off with is probably Climax. Because it's not too in-your-face, but you've got kind of all of the Noé-isms in there. And it's modern as well. So some people, they won't, won't watch anything that's more than like 10 years old. So... Yeah, I would say start with that one, but really all of his feature length films are worth watching to me. Um, I would say, yeah, Climax, Irreversible, Into the Void, I Stand Alone. If you can watch all four of those, you're doing well.
1: Yeah, or if you want uh, a shortcut to the Noe Oeuvre, then a really great short film is a film called Voodoo, which was part of the Seven Days in Havana collection. Um, really, really nice film that uses all of Noé's stylistic tropes and delivers quite a story in under 10 minutes.
0: Cool. So if you want like uh, Noé but in a bite-sized chunk, that's kind of a good one to start off with, definitely. Um, So let's uh, move on to Irreversible, which is why... You guys are all here. I would say Irreversible, by the way, is probably not a good film to start off with for Gaspar Noe, unless you want to get into the most fucked up film straight away. Cause, uh, yeah, there's some really, really fucked up shit in this film. As we're going to go into the synopsis or indeed the story of Irreversible, I will give you very quickly. It's a rape revenge film. So there's a lot that kind of goes into that. And I'm going to talk about rape revenge films in a sec. You have a couple it is Alex played by Monica Bellucci and Marcus played by Vincent Cassell. They are out at a party with Pierre. who's played by Albert de Pontel, who is Alex's ex-boyfriend. Um, They all kind of get on to a certain extent. There's a little bit of banter between Alex and Pierre, more from Pierre's end. A lot of needling from Pierre to Marcus for different reasons. Uh, Lots of talk about, like, you know, sex. The French are very open about kind of people having sex with each other and all that kind of stuff. It's all very very strange to me as a repressed British person. (laughs) Anyway... (laughs) So anyway, um, Alex gets upset with Marcus at this party and she leaves. Um, She ends up getting very horribly raped and beaten by a man in an underpass. And then obviously Marcus and Pierre find out about this. Marcus is very understandably upset by this and he wants vengeance. And then he finds out uh, that someone called Latenia the tapeworm, who's a pimp, could have been the one to carry out the rape, and he is found at the Rectum Club, and they go to the club, and then there's a very, very nasty incident involving a fire extinguisher that we're going to go into in a sec. Now, as I said, it's a rape revenge film, it's kind of a standard rape revenge narrative. This, If you've seen any rape-revenge films, it's not really that different from a lot of them in many ways. But what this one does differently is this one is in reverse chronological order. So you see the revenge part first, and then the rape part is in the middle, and then the second half of the film is essentially all the stuff that would typically come at the start of the film when you're kind of getting to know the characters. So it's kind of interesting. So there are things that you find out in the course of the narrative. So the first thing I would say, and this is really, really fucked up, is that the ending, which if this played out the right way round, it would have a very, very downbeat ending. It would have a horrendously downbeat ending because, spoiler alert, everybody, um, (laughs) the man who gets beaten nearly to death or to death with a fire extinguisher is not actually the person who carried out the rape. He is there in the club but it's not him who gets this this beating dished out to him with a fire extinguisher. It's actually some other random character who was wrong place at wrong time. Um, so that's really messed up. But you also find out other things about the characters that would not be as apparent if the film was in the right order. So I don't know if you caught this. But before they go to the party, Pierre, who I don't like, by the way, I think Pierre is a massive shit in this film. (laughs) Not just because he's called Pierre, but just he's just such a, I don't know, he's just a very kind of insecure guy, and he always rubbed me the wrong way. Even when I first watched this film back in the day, like in the 2000s, he always, like, I don't know, there was just something about him that didn't feel sincere or genuine i just thought he was just a bit of a prick character he gives marcus like some i think it's ecstasy before they go to this party so when he then starts sort of acting up at the party and he starts wanting to dance with everyone and do coke <laughs> and all this kind of stuff it's because pierre's given him this fucking ecstasy because he's trying to get back with alex so he's basically setting up marcus so what a dick anyway so um so yeah, uh, Mira, what are your thoughts on all, all that, what I've just said?
1: Well, Irreversible is another intellectual experiment that unfolds visually, um, but just like Enter the Void is is based around the the main idea of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, which is about the soul's journey between physical death and reincarnation Um, this film is sort of loosely based around the main idea of the uh, jw dunn book and experiment with time and this is the book that we see monica bellucci's character reading in a park in the final scene of the film which chronologically would have been the opening of the film yeah and uh she mentioned this book she mentions this book to to Marcus be- when they're getting ready for the party and she mentions that she has she had a dream about being in a tunnel that breaks into two um which is a um a form of like pre uh, a form of precognitive dream um mm. which sort of foreshadows that which is meant to happen to her later that night of course we had already seen this on the screen Um, yeah which
0: what is what makes it really really fucked up because we can see essentially into the future
1: yeah and um it's not really until almost the end of the film that we find out that she was actually pregnant so the whole weight of the tragedy kind of comes crashing down on us knowing that not only has a loving, beautiful woman been brutalized, and that's really irreversible in the sense that, you know, um, Mm. the physical damage notwithstanding, you know, that's something that really does change you for life and is likely to affect both her existing relationships and any relationships that she has in the future. But also that this rape... Um, almost definitely resulted in the death of this unborn child inside her. Um, but mm-hmm. the, the central idea of an experiment with time, which is, uh, which was a, a book which was quite influential at the time. It was published, um, in the 1920s and it was sort of part of the kind of surrealist, um, movement in a way. It was picked up by the surrealists and, um, surrealism is something that Noé has, has openly admitted to being interested in. Um, one of his favorite films is Enchant Andalou um uh which is sort of the surrealist film par excellence. Um mm. and um the the idea um the, the idea that this um book proposed at the time was that um precognitive um visions um are uh, given to um are given to us to allow us to um foresee future personal experiences and um and that certain events um occur uh, again and again in our lives in order to give us a chance to alter the ultimately the 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 course of events um, so the whole, the structure of the film, as well as these clues that are given to us within, within the film, um, can be seen as a sort of, um, meditation on this, on this theme in the same way that the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, gives the, the narrative, but also the stylistic direction to enter the void, um,
0: Although what I would say is you don't have a character in this going, oh, I've read this book. You should read it too. It's great. It's about this. Like well, you're getting into the void.
1: Oh, gosh. But Alex does mention it. She mentions it to Marcus. And then she mentions it to um, to Pierre and Marcus when they're on the underground. Uh, okay. Um.
0: I must have this that. <laughs> or
1: when they're in the lift going to into the into the building where the party is. But yeah, this is something that she that she refers to again and again. Um I, I'm completely with you on that because actually the first time I watched a reversible would have been in the early 2010s. Um, so I was in my early twenties, I was studying French at university. And I was trying to watch as many films as I could, um, in French, kind of without subtitles, without dubbing to practice the language. And so when I first saw it, I watched it just completely with French, uh, in French, without subtitles. I have to say the film is quite self-explanatory. You know, like you're not going to (laughs) misinterpret, you know, what, what is happening, but, um, I have to say, I must have gotten only about 50% of what was said. But the interesting thing is that virtually everything that we see spoken on the screen was improvised by the actors. No, hadn't Mm. scripted this. So in fact, the actors were encouraged to have conversations, interpret the situations as they, you know, as they saw, saw fit. And Monica Bellucci and Van Sankasala at the time, um, they were married and the scenes of, uh, the scenes of, of intimacy between them and the sort of like weird little conversations and kind of messing around between them. They, they, they do resound with this, with this realism. They they are extremely believable. Like you, you get a sense that you are seeing something, um, almost like looking into their, their private life. Um, as you, yeah, as you're I watching. got that
0: feeling as well, actually, like, that's one of the things like, cause we were talking about love. I think one of the things that irreversible has over love is one, the actors in irreversible are better. They just are. So they were able to improvise the material better than the actors in love, but also because yeah, they are like a legit couple. They've been together for years,
1: and they've been in lots you know, of films together.
0: And they have; they have been in many films. They're like the it couple of European cinema. Well,
1: not for anymore. Many many
0: years. Well, at the time they were. At for the sure. time they were.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Mister and Missus Smith.
0: In, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, they've been in at least five different films together. Like so so yes anyway they're used to being in films together this is weird you get this with actual real life couples when they appear in films a lot of the time they don't have any chemistry on on screen Mm. it's this weird phenomenon Mm -hmm. where yeah you can have like someone who obviously in real life you get along with famously as shall we say but on screen you have like negative chemistry whereas that's not the case here no they have really really good chemistry
1: yeah. And they, they look very good together as well on the screen. Uh, you know, both believable, but just from an aesthetic viewpoint. And obviously, Noah is very aesthetically minded. I mean, he's been known to cast women that he's randomly seen out and about clubbing, you know, in his films because <laughs> they have a certain look about them. Um, and, and in this case, um, uh, one of the one of the things that Noah mentioned um at the press conference um for love in Kiev, which I attended um was the challenge that he felt um working with a real life couple namely Monica Bellucci and Vincent Cosell when he was doing irreversible so when the ten minute rape scene had been edited and and put together. Um, he invited uh, Monica Bellucci and Vincent Cassel around his house to to watch it because he kind of wanted to, you know, to get there okay, so to speak. And right. he was feeling exceptionally self-conscious showing that scene surprised. to Vincent Cassel and Monica Bellucci in the same room. And he was just kind of like, you know, holding his breath the whole time. And then, and then, you know, when, when that was over, he just kind of, like, looked over to them and kind of was almost expecting Vincent Cassel to, like, beat him up or something. And they were both really pumped, going like, oh, yeah, yeah, that looked incredible, you know. So very much a cinematic couple that lived for cinema at the time, who were completely able to, you know, um, distance themselves um, from what was happening, you know, um, as professional actors but to bring intimacy and the chemistry that that existed between them at the time onto the screen. So, a rare flower, in other words.
0: Yeah, Yeah, although that's interesting that you say that that was the reaction that they had, because that was not the reaction that people had at the Cannes Film Festival when this film premiered. So I refer to a review because obviously I wasn't really watching films at the time. So can wasn't something that I was really paying a lot of attention to in 2002. Um, so I refer to this review, which is actually on Letterboxd by Mike D'Angelo, who was writing for Time Out New York at the time. And he mentions, for example, in this review, I'm not going to quote it because it's quite a long review, but essentially he was talking about how literally in the first half of this film, literally half the audience walked out of it, that people were legitimately furious. Apparently I, this isn't mentioned here, but I remember reading something to the effect of like, it was Vincent Carcel's brother or something was in the audience at the screening at Cannes and he openly sort of said he wanted to beat Gaspar Noé up for, like, <laughs> making this film or, something, or like, yeah, for putting his brother's other half in this position, you know, <laughs> showing her getting violently raped for, like, ten minutes. So, yeah, people were fucking pissed off at this film at the time. Which, uh, uh,
1: yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't just what was happening on the screen. It was also the... Um, the sound so the sound design was particularly unsettling and a lot of people found the kind of the low whirring um, almost like womb-like sound really difficult to bear
0: yes which is deliberate on Noé's part he did that on purpose it's not like some accident where he made the film kind of difficult for some people to watch no he put that in there deliberately everybody
1: I'm pretty sure everything he does is done deliberately. You know, all the, um, all the sensual affront, uh, on Gaspar Noe's part is completely calculated.
0: Yeah, him and, uh, cause I, at the start of this uh, podcast, I mentioned how he's the bad boy of kind of French cinema. And I would say him and Lars von Trier are kind of both the, uh, enfant terrible, shall we say, <laughs> of kind of European art house cinema. So sort of, they are, they're both the bad boys. Although I would say Noe is kind of a bit different to von Trier. Um, I would say Noe is a bit less. I don't know. He doesn't necessarily do the whole press conference gimmickry. Like he's not compared himself to Hitler at a press conference yet. <laughs> so he's, uh, yeah. Uh, von Trier has got that one over him. Like he's not said like ridiculous stuff to the press, uh, as far as I'm aware of anyway. Um, but yeah. And I would say that that's an interesting point that you bring up because a lot of the negative reviews of the film, they talk about things like how, Oh, You know, obviously people talk about the rape scene and how it upsets them. And I, I, you know what? I can understand that, that that's perfectly reasonable to get upset by, by the rape scene. But the Marcus uses a lot of slurs, like, so there's a lot of content in there, which could be, and perhaps you can understand would be called homophobic. There's definitely a couple of scenes that are questionably a bit racist and there's Other scenes that are... Well, there's one scene that's kind of transphobic. But I would say that that's not like a malicious thing on Noe's part. He's just kind of showing this character who's become so debased that they almost don't care what they're saying. They will say literally anything, doesn't matter how bad it is, because they want this revenge so much. At least that's my interpretation of it anyway.
1: Yeah, it really shows the blindness of rage and the misguided nature of revenge. And um, also ironic, really, because the other controversial scene in Irreversible, the one that involves a man being beaten to death with a fire extinguisher by Pierre, ironically. You know, yeah, P- that's Pierre the thing, yeah. is actually the one who is, you know, kind of meant to be... He's a he's a bit of a beta male isn't he? He's a bit of a kind of um all talk and no
0: yeah. He's kind of action. like a bit weak sort of pseudo intellectual man who's sort of, you know, trying to get back with his ex-girlfriend in like this really underhanded way at mm. a party and he's like, you know, literally there's about 20 minutes of the film where the revenge sort of build up is happening where he's saying to Marcus, no, don't do this. What are you doing? <laughs> Go to the hospital. It's, that's that. <laughs> literally for about twenty minutes. It's it's kind of funny in a way. And yeah, you're right. He's the one who actually because what happens, and it's hard to even if you've seen the film, it's actually hard to make out because the scenes at the rectum club are deliberately filmed in a very disorientating way, like lots of swirling camera work and it's dark as well. And I think some of that is to hide kind of some of the uh, the well, sexual activity kind of going on at this club. It sort of portrays kind of uh, a very Sardian, shall we say, kind of atmosphere at this this club, Lurectum. Um <laughs> where...
1: Excellent pronunciation.
0: <laughs> Merci. Merci beaucoup. Mange tu. Mange tu, Rodney. <laughs> um, so, um, <laughs> yeah, so he, Marcus, gets... He, he thinks he's found this guy Latenaire and he um gets in a fight with this random guy it turns out and he gets his arm broken he's going to get raped in this club just openly like in front of all these men and yeah it's through Pierre who saves him from getting kind of the same fate that his girlfriend got but at the same and but yeah at the same time he bashes the shit out of this guy's head with a fire extinguisher in it's excruciating detail, and it, it's CGI, so it's not like you're watching a, a Lucio Fulci film, for example. You're not seeing like some like polystyrene model of a man's head getting slowly kind of bashed in. It's it's done quite well, actually. Well, both, I would say 2002 CGI.
1: Both the fire extinguisher scene and the rape scene included CGI. So actually, the assailant's penis in the rape scene was CGI'd on
0: yeah exactly so so knowing that
1: mm. well mm. um you know, coming back to the realism aspect of it um i remember discussing this film with a friend of mine who went through a period of watching a lot of real death videos online um
0: we all know one of those
1: we all know one of those and yeah, it's like one of those dark corners of the internet kind of thing. You know, like there are websites where, you know, you can, you can watch, um, real life death videos that are uploaded by, um, by users all over the world. Really grim stuff. And he actually said that the rape scene, like he knew that was fake. Like he knew Monica Bellucci was not actually being brutalized for real. Um, but with the fire extinguisher scene, that looked real, like that looked realistic. And I'm just thinking, like, yeah, he would know based on his, um, mm. visual experience there. But, um, but that's something interesting. I feel like, um, like that's the scene that doesn't necessarily get talked about as much.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It kind of, uh, pays very close second to, to the rape scene for obvious reasons. The rape scene is kind of, the sort of centerpiece of the movie but yeah the the, the fire selling extinguisher point scene yeah if you want to call it that yeah um but yeah the the scene with the fire extinguisher is just it's so brutal and what makes it is not necessarily just the visuals of it although the visuals are really really fucked up it's the sound design the as the sound well.
1: design is really just out of this world
0: oh it's just, oh my god, it's just the, the sound of metal on bone and flesh is just...
1: Um, also, there's a kind of... It's quite difficult to describe it. Almost it's like almost like a turbine effect or like a helicopter or something or... You know when the sound goes nearer and then fa- and then farther. You know when it's kind of going. Yes, I know what you mean. Like, yeah, exactly. Wah. That's uh, yeah. I found that very very difficult um, personally. Watching it with sort of um, surround headphones, um, really uh, uh, on a on a big um, flat screen TV, I found like that kind of immersive experience of it like a lot more difficult than when I just sort of watched it on my laptop with my laptop speakers in the um, early 2010s, you know, it didn't really have the same effect.
0: (laughs) No, I can't imagine why. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So I suppose we've kind of talked around it a lot and we sort of just mentioned it. So you've got the scene with the fire extinguisher. That is a brutal scene in and of itself. But the scene that everyone talks about when it comes to irreversible is the nine minute long rape scene of Monica Bellucci by the in an underpass. And from my perspective, before I kind of ask Miro kind of what you think about it. So I, (laughs) there's, how do I put this in the nicest way possible? It's not the first rape scene I've ever seen in my life. So when it comes to these rape revenge films, there's sort of three that are really good. There's, there's irreversible. There's miss 45 by Abel Ferrara, which is really good. And the rape scenes in that are not actually that upsetting. They're kind of quite short and they're not sort of horrible. If that makes sense. And, it's just a really, really cool film, and I love Abel Ferrara. So that's the one that I always tell people to watch if you want to watch a, a rape-revenge film that isn't going to make you want to have a shower afterwards. And then the main one is obviously I Spit on Your Grave. Now, the original I Spit on Your Grave is very, very hard to watch. It's very... Although uh, Miyazaki, the director, he didn't intend for it to be like this really, really upsetting film. Um He made it because he knew someone who had this experience happen to them and he wanted to make a film that was original title was Day of the Woman so you know he wanted to make this movie that was about empowering women for God's sake uh, but he yeah, made this film with three different rape scenes in it. In the middle, it's about 30 minutes in total of these different rape scenes. And it's not just one guy, like Irreversible, it's multiple guys. And unfortunately, it is very difficult to watch, even now for a film that's like over 40 years old. Um, Irreversible is a bit different though. So for a start, it's, I believe, an unbroken single take. Mm. And the camera starts, and it's following Monica Bellucci as she leaves this flat or this apartment, whatever. And then it's sort of just... Because the central theme of the film is time destroys everything, and it's just this... The film is almost about chance and kind of like, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, kind of all this really fucked up shit happens to you. So she wants to get a taxi. She can't get a taxi. I think one drives past, from what I remember... And then uh, this passerby just says, oh, you know, you should go down the underpass because it's quicker. And so she goes down the underpass and the underpass is obviously a very deliberate visual metaphor for what is about to happen to her. And the underpass is it's coloured in like this red light as well, which is deliberate because red is not only the colour of love, it's also the colour of blood, it's the colour of violence as well. And then she kind of, without meaning to kind of finds herself, you know, passing this pimp who's having a a physical argument with one of his, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, perps, shall we say? I think that's what they're called. And yeah, she, uh, then the rape scene happens, which is done with a total stationary camera shot. It's very Michael Haneke. I would say because it's the kind of thing that Hanukkah would do where the camera it's not very close up to Monica Bellucci's face and the actor playing Latenia, his face either, but it's still fairly close up and you can see, and you can really hear like her screams very, very distressed seeing it, you know, not a lot actually happens. It's more listening to it is very, very distressing. But the worst part, to me, is in the background, about two or three minutes into this rape, you see a character walk into shot and then kind of turn around and walk away, Mm. which is very, very distressing. So it's like someone could have helped and chose not to because they didn't want to get involved. Uh, I don't know if that's another character in the film or not, or if it is literally just a random passerby. I'm not 100% sure.
1: I think it's probably but, a random passerby. There's nothing to suggest that it was any anyone that that we saw before or will will see before chronologically. Yeah,
0: I thought it could have been one of the heavy guys who, like, what was trying to say? Oh, you know, let's get this guy. You know, don't trust the police. I thought it might have been one of them, and mm. that was kind of why they kind of knew to be in the area when that was going on. But I think you're right. I think it is literally just some random person who's not involved with the story and then not only is she raped obviously she's then very very physically violently beaten afterwards not only sort of kicked a couple of times punched in the face several times
1: and, and, then and her verbally head is
0: smashed into the floor verbally yeah, assaulted and the as well
1: and the verbals a lot of them like I was surprised by how prevalent you know, there was a sense of class hatred.
0: Yeah, um, And that's definitely. something
1: that really comes across in um, Noé's first two films that we mentioned, Carne and um, I Stand Alone. Um, and obviously, you know, having the butcher appear at the start of the film, it kind of reminds us of that, that rhetoric, you know, kind of, of of class hatred, of, you know, of, of, of Monica Bellucci evidently being a representative of, you know, the bourgeoisie and she's getting what's coming to her, you know, um, in this, um, completely, um, unfathomable, violent way. Um, also quite, quite misanthropic, um, quite misogynistic rhetoric as well. Um, we know that this guy is, um, um, he's gay and that he's running, um, uh, tra- uh he's running transvestite prostitutes as a pimp. Um, and so, you know, just the, like the, the added, um, uh, horror of, of that as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's difficult, uh, to watch. It's difficult to, uh, talk about as well, actually. Um, it gives you I I don't know, talking about it now gives me quite kind of, quite visceral, kind of quite physical, um, reaction it puts me almost, you know, back in the shot. It's something that really kind of sears itself onto your um, onto your eyeballs, you know, watching. Um, I was surprised, I've only seen it twice, as I mentioned, once um, in the early 2010s and um, once in anticipation of this, and I was surprised at how well I remembered, you know, everything. Um, I was able to understand a lot more of the dialogue watching it with with subtitles this time but in terms of the visuals um and the sequence you know i i remembered it very very well it's certainly not a film that's easy to forget once you've seen it
0: no definitely i agree i agree wholeheartedly i just want to quickly ask because obviously a film like this there's two ways you can look at it. And this is why I haven't really gone into the whole reviews of the Outer Rim thing on on this episode. Because from reading reviews, there are kind of two different schools of thought. There's either this film is amazing, it's a technical masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And that's even people who say it's a technical masterpiece, but I would never watch it again and it's horrible. Mm-hmm. And then you've got people who are outraged for lack of a better term and they're like you know this is horrible for this reason and it's like oh you know Monica bellucci gets raped for 10 minutes and isn't this terrible which I, i'm just not a fan of kind of like outrage culture it's like you know it's not as black and white as that mm-hmm. but there was something i read and i thought I, I don't think i can talk about this with any authority for obvious reasons as will become clear but There was a reviewer on Letterboxd who said something to the effect of that Monica Bellucci's character only really serves a purpose to the film as sort of motivation for Marcus and Pierre to get revenge. So her character is almost like a plot device. Like, she isn't really a fully formed person in that sense. Like, it's a man's film.
1: I don't agree with that.
0: Right, okay. Let me see if I can find the review. So why is it that you don't agree?
1: Um I think she's a, a a a a fully rounded character. Um not just in the way that 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 she's uh scripted. You know, like there's 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 a very um a human element to her. The fact that she is a young woman who's in a relationship who is overjoyed at the news of her pregnancy and who's reading this book that has a a strange resonance f- to her, for her, and that that resonance, in fact, is this is hor- is this horrible presentiment of this um, of this uh, life changing um, extreme um, trauma. Um, you know, even if you didn't see her on screen or hear kind of the improvised dialogue, I I think she's still um, a very um, you know, a compelling character that you empathise with, just you know, by virtue of those of those quite quite basic facts, and um, and 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 birth and infants. I mean, conception. I would say conception and birth, childhood. That's a trope that that runs through all of Noé's films. That's something that he is very concerned with and it's certainly no accident that the poster that he chooses to display on the apartment of, of, of his Marcus and 2001, 2001, um, a space odyssey, the ultimate trip with the, with the, um, the new species, star being child. Born. the star child. Yeah. That to him is a very powerful image and, and, and watching love, um, with that in mind this time, i i found it a lot lot more symbolic and a lot more um a lot more moving as well you know because he is concerned you know with the mystery of conception and birth and of almost the um uh, random sometimes violent sometimes involuntary way in which souls are thrust into into the realm of the living um so So she's certainly not a plot device, no. She's a central character and a a strong central character at that.
0: Okay, let let me read the part of the review um, because it'll probably contextualise this a bit Mm. better. So I've tried to take out some of the more emotive stuff in this review. So it's a review from the outer room that I didn't say I was going to do but never mind um, it's by a user called Ash who gave it two stars out of five and this part of the review says what really ruins this film for me is the aftermath of the rape and how it is depicted through the eyes of not the now comatose victim this feels like a cheap shot to get out of actually exploring the rape beyond it just being a plot device but of her boyfriend and her best friend. Noe frames this story of sexual violence against a woman as a male story, and I honestly am disgusted by it. All Noe and his characters care about is being called a fag. There is a particular scene in which Pierre tells Marcus he didn't even have a quarter of the energy for Alex after she is raped, as he does defending himself against homophobic slurs. Alex declaring she is her own person does not work as foreshadowing, it just comes off as cruel. Alex is shown naked repeatedly, her only value coming in the form of her naked body and when or how it can serve a man. Her best friend talks nonstop about how they used to fuck, as if that was the only aspect of their relationship, the only one worth mentioning. Not once does Noe even attempt to understand how an event like this might impact on a woman, not even through backwards foreshadowing, it is simply a turning point in a man's story. I think this person misunderstands the film.
1: I think that Noe... ...is aware of the fact that he's playing with fire. I think he, he intends to provoke... ...but he intends to do so much more than provoke. You know, he um, uses provocation... ...to challenge the desensitized viewer... ...into, you know, grappling with these life and death issues. Um, it's not merely a shock tactic... You know, it's a consciously selected um, range of stylistic um, devices um, and narrative devices as well. Like certainly with regards to the reverse chronology, um, he lifts the revenge narrative um, from the the familiar and, 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 and makes something very artful of it which sort of challenges us um, as a viewer. But I think he's no stranger to bad reviews and generally being criticized and in many ways shunned um, for doing things the way he does and for for, for tackling um, um, the sort of topics that he tackles. I was quite surprised by how well-received across-the-board Climax was.
0: Yeah, it got a lot of really, really good reviews. I was shocked too. I thought it was Gaspar Noé, so people are going to dismiss it straight away. But no, it, it generally was received really well.
1: Hmm. And I wonder what it is. I wonder if it's because it's uh, in a way more stylized than many of his other films. In its, root. I think
0: it could be that, or it could be that although shocking things do happen in the film, it's not a case of. How in his earlier films, for example, were like, oh, you know, something really, really disturbing that's going to piss you off is going to happen. Like, you know, ooh, you can get out the cinema now if you want. Or with something like Irreversible, kind of like how, although it's not like I stand alone with like a warning or anything like that, people kind of knew what they were getting into. I think with um, Enter the Void and Love, it's less about violence, Mm. it's more about kind of... It's less misanthropic and less violent, I guess, is what I'm trying to say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think in Climax, he's maybe a little less self conscious in a way.
0: Yeah, apart from literally right at the start of the film. I think that's about as self conscious as he gets in the film. <laughs> you can't get any more self conscious than that.
1: Irreversible um, is a very confident film, um, and it's the product of a very mature vision. I was quite surprised watching, as I've said, his, his first two films at how fully formed his, um, his voice is even at such an early, uh, early juncture in his career.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. And it's at this point in the show, because we're coming up to the end now of our journey into the world of Gaspar Nye. And this is going to be an interesting question. <laughs> um, so irreversible how bad is it so is it a good date movie is it not that bad bad very bad or the worst and i'll uh, leave this one to you to start off with
1: i think it's a very bad date movie
0: i agree i would say it's not the worst because the film is very very well made and i think it has artistic merit And even though, yeah, the two things that happen in the film are horrific, it's not like the whole film is like wall-to-wall nihilism or wall-to-wall, like, just horrible content. There are films that are, believe it or not, there are actually films that are out there that are worse than this in terms of having violent content in it and just really hateful content. Um, but I would definitely not watch this on a date. This would be a horrendous film to watch on a date with anyone, whatever your sexuality. just yeah it's very bad for the rape scene alone, I would have to say it 's a very bad date movie, but not the worst
1: agreed, fully agreed. having said that, I think um as far as Gaspar Noe films go, this is the worst date movie
0: oh, yeah, I would say so. It's, it's the most kind of shocking in terms of, like, incident. Mm. Just purely for, for the rape scene. I would say I Stand Alone is very, very misanthropic. But apart from where he kind of, well, he punches his pregnant mistress in the stomach, you know, to try and get her to have an abortion, and there's obviously themes of incest and stuff in there as well, it's still... Doesn't even hold a candle to nine minutes of basically rape. So,
1: no, yeah, and it I would ends on a strangely optimistic note. I stand alone,
0: as does Irreversible, weirdly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, all in all, I think that Gaspar Noe is a compassionate and uh, morally responsible filmmaker,
0: absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, if you uh, want to watch this. Um, then it is quite widely available it's available from canal plus or studio canal um, whatever their kind of dvd wing is um so yeah yeah if you want to check it out because it's very good I and mean, in fact i mean any of no films i would recommend as would miro wouldn't you
1: absolutely go educate yourselves
0: watch them all watch them all And if you're a fan of French extreme cinema from the 2000s, then you'll want to check out the next show because the film I'm talking about is really, really fucked up. It's one that's been requested before. Not going to spoil it but I don't think you guys are going to be disappointed. So yeah, if you think irreversible is a bad date movie, then uh, you will also agree. The uh, next film I'm going to talk about is a bad date movie as well. So uh, check out the next show for that one. I want to thank Miroslava Hartman once again for joining me on one of these very, very bad date movie shows.
1: Thank you. This episode has been a noble challenge for me.
0: Yeah, i Totally understand. Yeah, yeah. God, I think it'd be a challenge for most people. But yeah, I want to thank you very much for stepping up to the plate and uh, handling some Noé, shall we say. And uh, I'll see you again very soon, I'm sure. And uh, yeah, I hope you've enjoyed our uh, descent into the world of Gaspar Noé, a uh, Sardian kind of descent into the world, it must be said. But a uh, descent nonetheless. And I hope you came out the other side a, uh, a better person for it. I thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you want to follow me on social media, you can at Worst Date Movies Ever. And don't forget to click subscribe wherever you're listening to this right now to never miss another episode of Worst Date Movies Ever.